So there I was, about 9.30 in the morning, just had my breakfast, got my cup of coffee, all set to start the day when I received a DM on LinkedIn. Now mind you, I don't get that many messages on LinkedIn, so I was a little bit suspicious at first, right? I mean, for anyone that's used LinkedIn before, this could be anything from some random sponsored promotion to just your basic spam message sort of thing. And so I ignored it for a while. Started my day, replied and sent a bunch of emails, cleaned up some audio from previous recordings, worked on some scripts for some episodes, and then in the midst of a short break, I got curious. Like, what if it's not just a spam message? What if it's a really good opportunity? And so I opened that message. And the funny thing is, it wasn't exactly the top end of what I had hoped for, But at the same time, it's not just some garbage promotional message either. What it was, was some random guy that I had never met before in my life, who connected with me on LinkedIn just to ask what's going on with this podcast. Like the message was something along the lines of, Hey man, I've been an avid listener of your show. Why haven't you been posting since February? That sort of thing. And (laughs) truth be told, right? When I read this, I was a little taken aback. Like seriously, people actually care about this show? I mean, I know from my own listening statistics that there are quite a number of you out there that listen regularly, and I will forever be grateful to you guys. But for the most part, I never really put a face to those numbers. And so basically, to cut a long story short, if you're listening out there, Mr. Sweet LinkedIn DM guy, Thank you so much for showing your concern. I am dusting off the cobwebs just for you. I know I haven't been updating much on this channel, but you know what? I thought why not give this podcast another go. And so, for my grand return, (laughs) after not posting an episode for months and months and months, for this comeback episode of all comeback episodes, what are we going to talk about? Swan Laughing. Hello, 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 and you're tuning in to an episode of the Economical Rice Podcast. So first things first, for those of you who are unfamiliar with what Swan Lafen is, it translates literally from Mandarin as sour and spicy noodles. The dish is traditionally made with sweet potato noodles and is served in a broth that includes some fairly basic ingredients such as chili oil, chili powder, soy sauce, vinegar, garlic, and most importantly, the Sichuan peppercorn. It is a popular street food which can be found almost anywhere in China, but originates from the place where you expect most spicy Chinese dishes to come from, Sichuan. Now, fun fact, in case you guys didn't know, not all Chinese food is the same, as in because China is so huge and has such a diverse range of history and culture between its various regions, different styles of cooking and preparing food naturally popped up over the years, where distinct regions are known today for having distinct styles of food. As you guys probably know, Sichuan is known for its mala, or numb and spicy dishes that prominently feature the Sichuan peppercorn, but other culinary traditions 
traditions include the famous Guangdong or Cantonese cuisine, where dim sum is believed to have originated from, or Jiangsu cuisine that tends to be more colorful and sweet and salty, with the sweet and sour sparrows being one of its most famous dishes. Moreover, what we must also note is that, repeat after me, not all that is spicy burns the same way. Chicken rice chili is sweet and tangy. Curry fish head is rich and aromatic. Wasabi is pungent and all sorts of violent. And Tabasco sauce is sour and personally I find it a little weird. Anyway, the Sichuan kind of spicy, right? Better known as mala is as what I have mentioned earlier, numbing. If you have never experienced mala before, I implore you to try it out if you can. It is honestly a -a one-of-a-kind culinary experience. You will sweat, you will gulp down glasses and glasses of water, but most importantly, your lips and tongue will literally be numb from the peppercorn. Which brings us back to the main topic of this episode, Suan La Fen. Now that you know a little bit more about this dish, the question that I'm sure you guys are having is why the heck are you talking about it? Well, mainly because of things like this. a new video and today I'll be trying out this suan la fen. So recently there's a huge trend over the suan la fen instant noodle. Hi everyone, so today we have a special edition of a taste test. We have suan la fen. Generally speaking, I don't like hype food. I actually had this hua jia fen for breakfast, lunch and dinner. After thinking for a bit, it is still spicy noodles and I do want to try it. So this is the vegan spicy and sour glass noodles. So the first one we have tiao tiao yu one. And then this one is the very famous hai chi jia that is going around the internet. So the last one will be Tuantongzu. These have a very atas packaging. See what's the content. A lot of ingredients here. Yeah. There's seven packets. One, two, three, four, five, six seasoning packs. You have, of course, the MSG powder. What's this? Is this hum? There's also dehydrated vegetables. Ah, my clams! There's also chili paste and chili oil. Where's the hum? Ah? I want to find the hum. The ingredient list, right, is insane. Oh, it's the seafood one. So high chance it's hum eh. And I have to say, it looks gorgeous. Honestly, it looks damn good. It's literally shiny. Not even sure whether if this is a hum though. I'm not even exaggerating. This is shiny and golden. Hey, there's a lot of ingredients ah. This is like... <laughs> Something out of Shi Shen. Ah. It smells great. This one very cute. It actually says artificial clam flavor. A lot of There's a lot of chili though. Okay, so they are finally cooked and I cannot wait to try them out. Oh, actually smells good though. So yeah, that's a ton of introduction already. Smell the vinegar. I hope you guys are hungry and ready to sweat. Yeah, it's quite oily. Lah. Let me try it first to see if it's worth the hot. Smells very chilly. Looks like hum. Let's get into it. Oh my god, it's really damn good. Eh? <coughs> oh, I love this one. Oh, ah. Extremely flavorful. <coughs> Delivers so much. I really like it. So spicy. <coughs> Insane. Because it's funky and I love funky stuff. Where's the hammer? I'm gonna find the hammer. Very nice, but it's super appetizing. The spiral fish cake has got a filling in the middle. Okay, so that's it for today's video. My lips are still tingling for the numbness. Okay, the fish over here is more tender than the other one. Okay, I think I have enough of this taste, yeah. Okay, I think you get it by now. 
Yeah, so apparently, over the past few months, Swan Oven has become something of a food trend in Singapore, with many influencers posting Instagram stories or YouTube videos about it and basically going gaga over what is, in essence, cup noodles. And that in itself is a key thing to note, right? That this version of Swan Oven that is going viral is not exactly the same as the one that is traditionally served by Chinese restaurants or street vendors, and moreover, with about a dozen or so Chinese manufacturers producing these instant swan and cup noodles, you get a whole lot more variety than is usually offered with flavors ranging from vegan to seafood to beef and so on. In fact, these cup noodles have actually been around in China since 2018, so it isn't really anything that new. But as to why it took off in Singapore and why only in the early to middle of 2020, well, my best guess would be that it is a combination of several factors. Number one, Singaporeans tend to love their spicy foods. Number two, the mala variant had been becoming increasingly popular in recent years, with the mala xiangkuo dish being a prominent example. And number three, with Singapore under the lockdown or circuit breaker during the COVID-19 pandemic, people couldn't go out to get their mala fix and therefore pounced on what seemed like a pretty decent and not to mention social distancing adherent alternative. Now with that out of the way, what exactly is there to discuss about Suanafen? I mean, I guess I could talk about the taste, or how it looks, or its wonky packaging maybe? What about the hefty $3 plus per cup price, or maybe a Suanafen bonanza akin to the bubble tea episode? The thing is, I could talk about these things, but frankly speaking, all of it has already been discussed to death on social media. So when I was brainstorming discussion topics for this episode, I tried to think about things that people might have missed out. And after weeks of stewing over some ideas in my head, I think I've come to something of a working conclusion. Now hear me out, okay? <coughs> This shit is weird as f Think about the wider context of this food trend. Singapore is now only just coming out of a two-month lockdown due to COVID-19, right? A lockdown which has struck fear into the nation, plunged the economy into recession, destroyed thousands and thousands of jobs, and shut down SMEs and companies at record-breaking rates. A lockdown, mind you, which was started by a disease that originated from China that spawned legions and legions of anti-Chinese sentiment and xenophobia online, and which probably cemented negative stereotypes about the country's food, culture, and people for decades and decades to come. And yet, in the middle of this pandemic, when everyone is staying at home to avoid catching this China-born virus, a Chinese product becomes a food trend, and suddenly everyone is going crazy about it. Does that not sound weird to you? What happened to all the anti-China hate? Or all the stigma that China is dirty and its food is disgusting and that's why COVID-19 started? Why, in all of these food reviews and vlogs and blogs and Instagram posts and Instagram stories, is there not a single mention about whether the product is safe or not, or whether the manufacturer is trustworthy, or even if they have complied to safety regulations? Like you would imagine, right, that in the middle of a pandemic that is widely believed to have originated 
from a wet market with questionable hygiene practices that at the very least, the most basic concern that you can have is whether or not the food was prepared safely. But no, most of them barely have two sentences to say about the manufacturer, much less if they are responsible with their hygiene or not. Like people can rush to supermarkets to buy out masks and hand sanitizers and toilet paper, and they can be suspicious and xenophobic about their China-born friends and colleagues. And yet when it comes to food trends, it's like, oh, that influencer posted about Swan Lafen. It looks good. I should go get some. Wow, look at all these ingredients. Looks spicy. Woo, so spicy. But is it better and or cheaper than this other brand? And that's basically it. And the reason that this really ticks me off is that it ties in with something that I've observed with the local food culture in recent years. Something which has only become more pronounced during COVID-19, and that is that it sometimes feels like these food bloggers and influencers operate in this extremely shallow bubble. It's as if when they record themselves trying out a trending food, they just seal off into this vacuum where all that matters and all that is worth talking about is how the food looks, how it tastes, how does it compare to other brands, and you know, the price. That's it. It seems like when they're doing this, they're shut off from whatever is happening outside. They're completely disconnected. And that is what I mean by shallow. Like, for instance, right, I had previously done an episode on bubble tea, where I went on this food tour with my wife Effie and my friend Devin, and we tried out several bubble teas and we talked about its history and the culture here in Singapore. But the thing was, the final cut was actually not what I had initially planned. The original idea was to go and interview a bunch of local bloggers and influencers to get their take on the bubble tea trend and to have them share some of their own experiences. But I had to scrap this idea because number one, barely any of them responded, and number two, the ones that did mentioned something along the lines of, oh, I just write about food, I don't think I'll have that much to say about its culture. Which really, really irked me because, motherfucker, you are part of the culture! Like even that one little soundbite that I included of uh, YouTuber Spacey earlier talking about how she had actually had this hua jia fen for breakfast, lunch, and dinner has more cultural depth than your standard influencer talking points. And to this, I also applaud the other YouTuber I included, Alderic Teo, for commenting on the most popular brand being Hai Chi Jia, which is actually quite a new company. Founded last year, no, last last year, 2018 March, and boomers would recognize Pa Liangjing, a long-time comedian. I of course didn't recognize who he is. I had to Google. Uh, not my nientai, this this person. But unfortunately, these instances are, in my opinion, just too few and too far in between to really make a dent in changing the way we talk about food. And I guess my biggest gripe with all of this is that we are slowly cultivating and promoting this shallow food culture where you can engage in these conversations about food for hours and hours on end without really talking about it, you know? Like, I can't think of any other area where you have people who are so passionate and so enthusiastic about trying out something and yet not care about its history or its culture or how it's made. 
Like these influencers and bloggers, they're supposed to be the modern day counterpart to old school food writers like the legendary KFC to of Makan Sutra fame, right? But the way I see it, barely any of them stand a chance at creating the same legacy and contribution to the local food culture as he has. Like this man has published stories such as the last professional knife sharpener in Singapore, why people offer real food during the Hungry Ghost Festival, or even who the first chicken rice hawker was. Like, I don't know about you, but that to me is cultural depth. And at least personally, I find it far more engaging and interesting than just a random photo or your endless roundabout conversations we have about the taste, the look, and the price of food. Now, some of you might think that I'm taking this issue way too seriously. Like, come on dude, it's just food. Some people want to take photos and share it on social media. So what? Just leave them be. It's not a big deal. And you know what? I actually agree. For the majority of us, we are privileged that food is the least of our concerns. Or to put it differently, we can afford to be more selective about the foods we eat rather than if we can have any food at all. Better then to allocate your mental resources to other issues such as your family, your career, your ambitions, and what have you. If you don't want to think too much about food, suit yourself. However, the main concern that I have with this modern-day social media-dominated food culture is that if you are just going to take photos and make captions about how you know this cake is amazing or how this chicken rice is too expensive, you run the risk of excluding what I think are the most valuable parts about food. The culture, the history, the stories, the people. Because in reality, right? Food, in and of itself, when you talk about the actual morsels on your plate, isn't that interesting. What makes it compelling is the story, the origins, the people it fed, and the cultural impact it creates. When you purchase a packet of fries from McDonald's, understand that you are not just buying a bunch of deep-fried salted potato sticks, but that you are also, in your own little way, participating in the growing legacy and impact of a true cultural juggernaut. You are continuing the story of a brand that started all the way back in 1940 and that from San Bernardino, California, managed to find its way into your neighborhood McDonald's restaurant here in Singapore. Don't you think that's amazing? Aren't you the least bit curious about how that happened? And you know, this doesn't only apply to your uber-famous and culturally transcendent brands. In one of my previous episodes, I talked to a friend of mine from the Longkang Kitties podcast, Jerry, about his family's roast meat hawker business which operated for a couple of generations. He told me about how his dad was lost in his youth, about how he finally found a mentor, started cooking, and provided for the family. He told me about how during the busy periods, the whole family would be involved and would work for ridiculous hours. He told me that despite the hard work, it was a sort of family bonding in a way, and that even years later, they still share stories and talk about those memories. Sure, that story might not compare much against McDonald's, but it's still a story, and I'd rather talk about that than just the taste and look of their roast meat. 
Likewise, you don't even have to be a hawker or a restaurant owner or a chef to have your own personal connections with food. In another example, I had spoken to this guy named Kevin, who was sharing his story about how he had lost a major bodybuilding competition. He told me about how it had meant so much to him and about how it had so devastatingly crushed him when he lost. But in a rare moment of levity, he also talked about how hungry he was from weeks and weeks of dieting and that when he got home from his loss, he immediately devoured his favorite food, KFC fried chicken. Sure, you could look at food as just food. You could take photos and make silly captions and have your endless roundabout conversations. But I guarantee that your own connections and histories and stories with food run a whole lot deeper than that. Like I said, you don't necessarily have to run a store or operate a restaurant to tell your story. Whatever experiences you already have help to shape the culture and our culture stands to benefit when more of these experiences get told. That time when your mother made soup when you were sick, the meal you had on your first date, the brand of chips that comforted you through a rough stretch, that favorite snack that you and your partner share. Food can just be food, but because we are humans and we have this annoying capability of attaching meaning to just about anything, I say don't let that go to waste. There's more to Swan La Fen than just its taste or how it looks, just like how your favorite food means more to you than just a grouping of meat or vegetables or noodles on a plate. And so to close off, I want to share my favorite example of someone talking about his connection with food. And it comes from Malcolm Gladwell's podcast, Revisionist History, Season 2, Episode 9, titled McDonald's Broke My Heart. Malcolm Gladwell, in case you don't know, is a well-known journalist and author. He is skinny, he has these brown curly locks, he wears these thin wiry glasses, and he has this uncanny ability to 100% nerd out at just about anything. In this masterpiece of an episode, right, he tells the story of how he used to love the McDonald's french fry when he was a kid, raving about its golden brown texture and exquisite crunch and how it was truly a treat whenever his parents took him there. But as years passed, he found that the quality of the french fry had declined and he spends the entirety of this episode researching and talking to people to find out the exact reason why? Culminating, and I kid you not, in one part where he actually conducts a test to definitively prove that the previous version of the french fry was better. Now that to me is a much better way that you can talk about food. That to me is incredible. That screams cultural depth. And at the end of the day, I'm not asking you to be Malcolm Gladwell. I'm not asking you to research and write 40-minute episodes about your favorite food. But for the love of God, for the sake of better conversations about food, please, 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 the next time you see some influencer gushing about the next trendy food, or you find yourself standing up to take a table photo during lunch, take a second and beyond the taste, beyond the look, beyond the price, think about what that food means to you. 
Oh, and also, before we end, this episode would not have been possible without the help of Lauren Ong, who suggested I looked into Swan Lafen, and who actually sponsored two cups of the Haitsuchia brand for me to try. So that's the one I slammed on the table at the start of this episode. Um, she wanted me to do like a taste test ASMR kind of thing. So I guess to keep up my end of the deal, it's going to be a food review kind of thing after all. I'll keep this short, I promise. Okay, so um, the noodles are done. I have left it in for about five minutes with the uh, the boiling water. And, you know, I have to say that uh, <laughs> our Derek Teo guy was right. Um, yeah, these noodles do look shiny. This like, it's, it's golden. Shiny. Out of the packet, it was like white and uninteresting, I guess. You know, but these look shiny. This and is shiny and golden. Mmm. Smells very chilly. Oh, very <laughs> 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 Smells like uh, mala should. And so, finally, um, I guess to give it a taste, I'm gonna try the uh, soup first, okay? Wow, that's pretty good, I guess. Oh my god, it's really damn good. Oh, I love this one. Okay, and uh, I'm gonna try the noodles next. Extremely flavorful. I really like it. Insane. Um, yeah, it's pretty good. 